We're continuing this morning in this Acts series that uh, we really just got started in. We'll be in it for uh, a, a good bit during our Sunday morning time. <clears throat> let, let me say, if you don't have a Bible this morning, uh, Tom in the back would love to hand out Bibles to you. So uh, we think it's important to actually have um, paper to turn. That's, that's uh, some things we forget about sometimes. You can use your device if you want. There's nothing wrong with that. But at the same time, uh, we like to turn pages and look at uh, Scripture in our Bibles. So if you don't have one, we would love to give you one. Just uh, pop up your hand, and Tom would be happy to give you one. That's our gift to you if you do not have a Bible this morning. Well, uh, as I said, we're, we're continuing in this series in Acts this morning. And um, I know every week you see the same banner, but the, the banner really represents a lot about who we are as Substance Church. We're gospel-centered, relationally driven, God-glorifying. And the truth is that shows up in uh, all of our passage this morning. But especially the the gospel-centered piece that really represents who we are, represents who the early church is. Let me catch you up real quick. Acts chapter 1, we've got uh, Jesus telling those followers of his that they were going to be his witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, the remotest parts of the earth. Acts chapter 2 says there's 120 people gathered. The Holy Spirit comes as Jesus had told them to gather and to wait and to pray. And the Holy Spirit comes, um, Peter preaches his first sermon, 3,000 people come to faith in Christ. The next thing we see is an intimate picture of the early church in Acts chapter 2, where they're meeting together and praying together, meeting at the temple courts together, sharing all they have together, and sharing their faith. Last week in chapter 3, we see Peter and John in the temple and uh, they are about to enter the temple, and on the steps of the beautiful gate, it is called, um, there's a crippled man sitting. And uh, he's placed there every day because he's not allowed to enter the temple because he's crippled. The uh, religious leaders of the time had, <clears throat> had really distorted what had been taught earlier. Really said that only priests could not be um, lame, blind, um, not 100% pure, but the religious leaders had distorted that to include anyone. So here's this guy crippled for 40 years on the steps. Peter and John walk by, and uh, he asked for money, and they, and they say, well, we don't have any money to give you, but what I do have to give you is Jesus. And he gets healed 40 years of being crippled. Now he goes into the temple leaping for joy, and that's where we're going to pick up this morning is what happens next in Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4 is really a transition, not only for the book of Acts, but a transition for the Christian faith in terms of those who follow Christ. Because Acts chapter 4 introduces a pattern of opposition and conflict that the gospel will bring throughout history. It's really when we first see the gospel starting to produce in the early church a conflict 
in the society and in their religious leaders that would hear Peter and John preaching. Persecution and conflict now enter the scene. Let me remind you, though, this morning that this should not have been something of a surprise to anyone. Matthew chapter 10, Jesus told his followers this would happen. Listen to what he says. He says, I'm sending you out as sheep among wolves. That There's a cheery way to say yes to Jesus. I'm going to send you out as sheep among wolves. You'll be put before religious leaders, rulers, authorities, and also family members will divide against you and hate you. That's, that's what Jesus told them right up front. That's what you should expect. And they'll listen to what he finishes with. And he said, you will be. He doesn't say you might be. He says, you will be hated. You will be hated because of my name. That's what he told people. And so Acts chapter 4, you begin to see this being lived out in the lives of the followers of Christ. You've got religious leaders and authorities now confronting Peter and John as well as followers of Christ because of the name of Jesus. Matter of fact, Acts chapter 4, verse 4, after Peter and John had healed the uh, crippled man and launched into this great exposition of Scripture and the Gospel, 5,000 men come to faith in Christ. Now that's in the temple area. 5,000 men. I don't know why it says just 5,000 men. Sometimes scripture just notes that. We don't know that it was just men. It could be whole families. Who knows how many? 120 people to 3,000 people to those being added daily that are being saved to now 5,000 men and maybe many of their families coming to faith in Christ. It's a pretty crazy time in the life of the early church, right? This is a time when there's fast and massive gospel expansion. Multitudes of people are responding to Christ. It's not going to go unnoticed or without resistance. This whole thing is taking off at such a fast pace. You've got a group of religious leaders, skeptics, and those who feel threatened, wondering what's going to happen. How do we stop this? You see, the gospel will always bring about conflict. It will always bring about some sort of reaction, and many times a negative reaction, some discomfort, because it brings conviction to people's lives. And we're going to look into that this morning. Why is that so? Why is it in Acts chapter 4 we see this trend now really starting to set in in terms of opposition and offensiveness that the gospel brings? Well, because the gospel always, always addresses sinful hearts. The gospel always brings with it a, a confrontation of what we believe about who we are and who God is and what it takes to be right with God. The, the gospel always confronts us and reveals 
that it requires a response. And so as we look at these verses this morning, keep that in the back of your mind. The, the gospel is offensive because it always goes after our hearts. It always confronts our human condition in terms of our relationship with God. And it always requires a response. You're pinched. You're pinched. Acts Chapter 4, I want us to look at the first four verses together. Read with me. Then they were speaking to the people, they meaning Peter and John, and the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, listen to the words, greatly annoyed because they were teaching people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who heard the word believed, and the number of men came to about 5,000 people. Do you catch that? Listen to what's happening. They, they're, they're preaching in the temple. 5,000 men come to faith, probably some of their families, the religious leaders of the time. And, and the, the people that are in this group are the top of the top. I mean, you couldn't find more powerful, more uh, important religious leaders than those listed in this passage. And they come upon Peter and John, and what are we going to do with this situation? It's interesting, when you look at this, none of the religious leaders, and matter of fact, the temple police are there, none of them seem to be upset that a guy just got healed, or amazed at that. I mean, nobody seemed to be saying, wow, this is pretty incredible. They were only concerned that Jesus is being taught and proclaimed. And for that, that puts them into a state of panic. Whenever the gospel is faithfully preached and taught, listen, somebody's going to be offended. Somebody's going to be offended. They were greatly annoyed, not a little bugged. They were greatly annoyed. I remember back uh, some years ago when uh, my wife and I were invited to a wedding in Washington, D.C. It was a very, very close, probably my wife's best friend from college who was Jewish. And um, we were asked to um, be a part of this wedding and went to Washington, D.C. and uh, the the night that the men were going out, it really wasn't much of a bachelor party. It was going to a nice restaurant, okay? My wife was um, with her best friend. And so there's two cars of men, uh, one being, a, I don't remember, it was a van or a large SUV, and somehow I get put in with this group of guys that I don't know, and we're going to this restaurant. And everything's fine as I'm put in the front seat and the discussion's going along until somebody says, so, hey, Jeff, what do you do? Yeah, right? Oh, boy. Here we go. You know, I'm in a carload of guys who are Jewish followers, not Christians. And I say, well, um, I'm a pastor. And it gets dead silent. I mean, awkward, 
And I remember just sitting there being nervous, like, what am I going to say? Because it was just so quiet. One of them said, you mean like a pastor like that believes in Jesus kind of pastor? <laughs> yeah, kind of like that. But luckily, we, we had a chance to dialogue a little further. I think I won them over. I was kind until um, they asked me about Jesus and my belief in him being the promised Messiah of Israel. <laughs> Silent again. You know, Jesus and the gospel will always bring opposition. It happens today, doesn't it? Find yourself in family gatherings, situations at work, at school, wherever it is, and you drop Jesus into the discussion, and you're going to offend someone. That's what's happening here. Religious leaders are almost in panic mode. What, what are we going to do? How do we stop this? We think we did stop it. We just put the guy on the cross, and he died, and he's rose again, and now he's not even here because he's ascended into heaven. People are speaking his name and 5,000 people today alone. Can you see their dilemma? They don't know what to do. They only cared about Jesus being spoken and it disrupting their own religious system and own religious beliefs. It pinched them. It put them into a point where they would have to deal with Jesus. One of the things when I read passages like we're reading this morning that I cringe at is every time I hear the prosperity gospel spoken of. You know, the gospel that says that if you believe in Jesus, you'll be wealthy and healthy and there'll be no troubles in life. These guys just got arrested for Jesus. You'll follow a pattern in the book of Acts where that was a common thing. You have the apostle Paul, stoned, beaten, exiled. You have the great saints of the faith, some of them burned alive at the stake over the gospel because it offends people. It's not too cheery this morning, Jeff. I don't like to hear that. Stick with me. You see, the exclusivity of the gospel and Jesus will always bring opposition. It makes people greatly annoyed when they have to deal with their own lives and their own hearts. And some of you this morning, I promise I will offend you by the time I am done. Actually, it's not me. I try not to be offensive, but I want to share a message that is offensive. But you see, not only is the Jesus and his gospel offensive, there's good news. This offensive gospel is the very gospel that saves. It's the very good news that brings dead people to life. It's the very good news that helps us understand I can do absolutely nothing to be accepted by God. All I have to do is believe in Christ. That's what he did. This good news not only saves, but it restores me in my relationship and in my life. That's the good news. And so it's worth every conflict. 
It's worth every opposition. It's worth every single difficulty. Amen? Well, let's look at verses 5 through 14. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest, Caiaphas, John, and Alexander, and all who were of the high priestly family. Uh, Let me just make a note there. When it lists all these people in the high priestly family, it always catches my attention that uh, this wasn't about qualifications. It was about being part of a family. The very religious leaders of the time got to be priest and high priest because they were a part of a family unit, not because of qualifications. And when they uh, set them in the midst, they inquired, by what power, what by name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders. If we're being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, but by what means did this man, uh, has he been healed? Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom, you, whom God raised from the dead, by him, this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus, but seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. Pretty amazing scene, isn't it? The high-ranking officials now coming to these two men saying, look, you got to stop talking about Jesus. you got to stop proclaiming the gospel. And so they're brought before them, and they inquire of them by what means did this guy get healed? Do you notice they didn't say by us, did they? They said simply by Jesus. There's more to this story that we don't have a lot of time to examine, but, but let me just say this. The fact that the crippled man was on the steps of the temple meant for 40 years he was not allowed to worship God. When he responded to Jesus, when they spoke to him, that meant his life had now been restored. There's a belief in Christ, and he has an open door and an open ability to now worship God. There's a backstory here about not only his physical healing, but the fact that Jesus restores him in relationship to God. And so Peter and John, as they spoke, knew that these religious leaders would connect to that. The Holy Spirit empowers them to proclaim Jesus. Here's how they would have heard it, these religious leaders, as Peter and John speak. 
They would hear it like this. It was Jesus the Savior, the anointed one of God. He's the Savior from Nazareth, which was spoken about in Scripture, whom you crucified. Now you just got arrested. You just got arrested, and you're speaking to the most powerful religious folks of the time. Is that what you're going to say? I mean, they, they don't hold anything back here. Whom you crucified, whom is alive, God raised him from the dead, providing and proving that he is the Savior. And then Peter quotes from Psalm 118 about the cornerstone, which we sang this morning being Jesus. The foundational piece. Remember, these folks are standing in the temple. Huge blocks of stone that have been put together to form the temple. And cornerstones were an important piece. And they're saying Jesus is the cornerstone, not the things we're standing on. They heard it like this, that the Savior you crucified is your only hope with God. There is no other person, no other way. It is Jesus and Jesus alone. And that's what they would have heard. And their response was, these guys are uneducated. You see what happens when you're confronted with the gospel? You either start to believe it and accept it, or automatically you start to make some excuses. I mean, they just laid out for them scripture, even, about Jesus being the Savior, and their response was, these are uneducated guys. They've simply been with Jesus. Why would they say that? Because in most rabbinical um, schools, uh, young boys would have only went up to, I think it's the age 13, in training. And at that point, you either get cut and sent back to your family business, or you continue on in rabbinical training. These guys were fishermen, shepherds. That meant they were sent back. You didn't make the cut. And they're uneducated men proclaiming and speaking the gospel faithfully. They're offended. They're greatly annoyed. And so in verses 15 to 22, I want us to read that. We'll finish up, and then I'll make a few observations this morning for us. Verse 15. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And we cannot deny it. In other words, here's this crippled guy standing here. Uh, there's an evidence i got to figure out how to deal with. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let them warn them to speak no more to anyone in, what is it, this name. So they called him and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we've seen and heard. And when they further threatened them, 
They let him go, finding no way to punish them because the people, for all the past, um, for all were praising God for what happened. For the man of whom the sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. You had a group of leaders completely puzzled on what to do at this point. I love it. I love it. These uneducated men supposedly just stumped them. And they didn't know what to do. Um, it's like, well, what do we do, guys? Hey, here's a brilliant plan. Let's just tell them not to speak about that anymore. Um, these are the guys that you just put in jail who just really unloaded on you with the gospel, who weren't afraid, who healed a crippled man who all these people now are starting to follow and believe in. And so if we just tell them not to speak, they'll probably not do that, right? You know, there's a, there's a real bright idea for you. And Peter and John's response was, so you take chances of standing before God one day. Asking us not to talk about Jesus, it's not going to happen. There's literally no chance in our life that we will not teach and proclaim which we have seen and which we have heard. Man, what boldness. What boldness. So they threaten them, try to turn up the heat a bit, but because this crippled man of 40 years is standing there, they could do absolutely nothing. Guys, the gospel can never be stopped. The message of the gospel will always be proclaimed. There's literally no way on this planet that the gospel can be stopped from being proclaimed and preached and taught by faithful followers. Rulers, authorities, religious leaders cannot do it. Do you hear me? And it happens even until this day. So here's four takeaways from this story that I want us to consider this morning. Four things that uh, we'll talk about in our community groups this week. The first one is this. The gospel is offensive because it confronts the human condition. The gospel is uh, offensive because it confronts the human condition. Verse 12, salvation is found in no one else. Now, when you think about this statement, the statement means that man is in need of a savior. Salvation is found in no one else. When you read that, it is saying man is in need of a savior. The gospel is offensive, but it be proclaims and reveals that we are hopelessly lost because of sin and in need of saving. Now, it's offensive to us to think that. Come up to me before I place my faith in Christ and tell me that I'm separated from God and I'm going to hell, and I would have been offended. But it's true, right? I mean, it's true. It's, it's offensive to tell somebody, without Jesus, you're going to hell. He's exclusively the way. He isn't one of the ways. He is the way, as this passage says. 
Well, why is that? Isaiah 59.2 says that our sin has separated us from God. There's a barrier between us and a holy God because we are sinful. And you might say this morning, well, that's a harsh language, Jeff, to call me sinful. Yep, that's what God says, not what I say. Well, you think, I'm I'm a pretty good person. I, I try to be kind and nice to people, and yet when I am placed beside Christ, the model the model of what a human should be, I fall completely short. The gospel is offensive because it confronts us with our sin and the fact that we're destined to hell. We're offended when someone says that we're not a good person, but that we're a sinful person. The gospel is offensive because it reveals we are sinful not only by nature, but by choice. Do you hear that? We're sinful by nature and by choice. I choose sinful things. Second, the gospel is offensive because it confronts the human heart. The gospel is uh, offensive because it confronts the human heart. Look at verse 11. Paul and, and, or excuse me, Peter and John unleash on the religious leaders and say, This Jesus is the stone rejected by you. You see what's happening? They're saying, Look, the Jesus that you're telling us not to speak about is the Jesus you rejected. It confronts the human heart. We want to think we're good people, but if we're truthful, folks, this morning, We understand that we would much rather have the things that the Creator has given us than the Creator Himself. Matter of fact, Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 9 says this The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. I have a heart because of the sin nature in it that wants to do what I want to do when I want to do it, and on my terms. I don't have a heart that is beating passionately for God and that he's my priority until I'm restored through Christ. The gospel is offensive because it exposes hearts that are not in love with God. You remember the command, the great command of Jesus when he was questioned by religious leaders. What's the most important thing Remember what he said? It's to love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength. The gospel is offensive because it confronts the human heart that is not in love with God. When our heart is confronted with its selfish, sinful bent, it produces uncomfortableness. It'll probably reveal this rebelliousness in us, saying, no, I'm not really that way. No, I I do like God, if you're honest. And so the gospel is offensive because it unveils and exposes a human heart that is not right with God. Third, the gospel is offensive because it confronts religious conformity. 
the gospel's offensive because it confronts religious conformity. Verse 17 says, But then in order that this might not spread any further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. Why was Jesus so offensive? Why? Because it points to and, and confronts lives that are pursuing religious conformity. A, a, a tendency for all of us to think that my good works and my good deeds somehow will add up to enough to make me acceptable to God. That they're standing in a temple where multiple times a day people will require to come and worship and give sacrifice and do things to be acceptable to God. And the gospel said there is absolutely nothing you can do to be acceptable to God. Otherwise, Jesus would have had no need to come. Right? And, and so the gospel is intruding on these religious leaders' faith and practice and power. It's going to destroy all the things that they were trying to lead in. The gospel is offensive because it reveals counterfeit gospels. The, the true gospel is a one-way, one-person message, folks. The gospel reveals counterfeit gospels. Let me say it again. The true gospel is a one-way, one-person message. And guess what? That's pretty offensive. Well, shouldn't I have choices? What about all the other people who believe other things? The gospel is a one-person, one-way message. The gospel is offensive because it destroys human reasoning, a reasoning that makes people think that uh, they are in some way better than the people standing around them, and so God will accept you one day. The gospel exposes sinful hearts. The gospel exposes that we are separated from God, our human condition hopelessly lost. And the gospel is offensive because it confronts religious conformity. Chances are there are some of you today who think that by coming to church and sitting here and singing, God looks down from heaven and gives you a, a, a check mark next to your name. We come and we worship corporately, not to win the favor of God, but because we've been shown the favor of God through Jesus. And finally, the gospel is offensive because it requires a response. Why all this issue in the temple? Because the gospel always requires a response. It required a response for Peter and for John, didn't it? What was the response? To go speak boldly, confidently, and clearly to whomever they came into contact with. The idea that we can uh, just be a believer in Christ and sit on the sidelines is not biblical. Peter and John, their response to the gospel has led them to be bold and courageous. 
And it requires you and I to be courageous as well. We're to be the carriers and the bearers of it. We are to participate in taking it to our world and our community and our friends. Now again, probably for many of you, you think, oh, that means being offensive. And I don't think uh, it's helpful when we're offensive, necessarily. I think simply, clearly sharing the good news of Christ can be done in a way that you just let the word be offensive. Because the truth is, at the end of the day, I'm no different than the person who has never heard it before, except that I responded. I have the same sinful heart and same sinful tendencies. I've just been rescued. For people who are not believers, it requires a response. 5,000 men respond to this. Do, do you realize the, uh, the risk it took for people to respond in the temple to Jesus? I mean, think about it. You are in the temple. You respond to the gospel. You place your faith in Christ. You are noticed by a lot of people who didn't do that. And we're going to go a little further on in the book of Acts, and we'll see people's lives at stake because they followed Jesus. They were identified. The gospel is offensive because there's only two responses to choose from. Here it is, the pinch again. Only two responses. You either accept it or you reject it. You hear me? Two responses. You accept it, you reject it. There's no middle ground. There's no other option. It will always be offensive because it requires people to accept it or reject it, and by accepting it, it means that you believe and trust in Christ and Christ alone, the one-person, one-way gospel. And that's hard, because here's what that means. It means for you to accept it, you recognize that your sin separates you from God. It means that you recognize you have the title sinner. It means that no religious activity can make you presentable and cleaned up enough to be before God and you're hopelessly lost. That's what accepting it means. You recognize that. It also means you repent. It means not a mental agreement, not confession. Uh, I mean, it is a confession of our personal sin, our guilt before God. Not mentally saying, yeah, I, I believe that stuff. No. It's a conviction that brings a brokenness where I bow a knee and I bow a heart to God in surrender. And then it's third, a reorientation. Accepting it means reorientation. It means the values you once had now must be the values of Jesus. It means your passions and your priorities, if you believe in Christ and the gospel, are the same as Jesus's. Now, you don't live it out perfectly, but there's a visible and a tangible devotion to your life because of Jesus. Those are your only two options. 
because those are the only two options, it's offensive. It's offensive. Matthew 7, 23, Jesus says this. Many will stand before me one day, many religious people, many who did religious works, but he'll say, depart from me because I never knew you. There's a relational connection to the gospel. There's a belief that my life is trusted and given to Christ. And I can stand before him one day and he knows me personally. I'm a follower. Well, the gospel is offensive. It pinches us down. What will we believe? What will we follow? Who will we serve? What am I willing to give up in following Christ? This morning, I offended some of you. Well, I didn't actually. There may be some who were offended this morning by the gospel, and you're greatly annoyed. Good. Be greatly annoyed, but search your heart. Two choices, accept it or reject it. For those of us who have accepted it, might a passage like this remind us of the power of the gospel as uneducated, unqualified people to go into our world and simply share what Peter and John shared? Jesus. I don't have to convince anybody. That's God's job. Jesus. The one way, the one person message. For those of you who are here this morning and you're just wrestling because maybe for the first time your heart's been really, really convicted, listen, listen to that spirit that is speaking to you. Yeah, the gospel is offensive. It will be. But it's the gospel that saves, restores, and gives us a certainty of eternal life with God. Let's pray. Lord, this morning, thank you for your word. Thank you that we have this intimate look into the early church. We have examples of people responding to the gospel that changed their life. Even Peter and John, who at one point ran from even knowing Jesus and now are speaking boldly to the most powerful religious people of the time because they cannot help but speak of what they know and about what they have seen. So, Lord, this morning, might we be encouraged by that, that a reminder that you'll give us what we need when we're confronted with sharing the gospel, or a reminder that our life is hidden and sealed in God through Christ, and therefore we have reason to hope and rejoice and not fear. Thank you for this lesson this morning. 
And we pray in Christ's name that you would be glorified by the only name, the only person. In Jesus' name, amen.